With their incandescent harmonies and futuristic stage costumes, the pop trio LaBelle upended conventional wisdom around sexuality, gender, and genre in the 1970s, helping to define both the look and sound of the glam rock era. They were able to express their love for each other in this girl gang way that, you know, did have a little bit of homoeroticism to it and queer feelings beneath the masks of gendered femaleness. That's Adele Berté, performer, musician, and author of the book Why LaBelle Matters. In this episode, we'll talk about how LaBelle synthesized multiple genres and artistic strategies to forge gleaming queer imaginaries. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. Around the turn of the millennium, one song was absolutely everywhere. On the radio, on TV, pouring out of car windows, sung in the hallways of elementary schools. It came from the soundtrack to Baz Luhrmann's 2001 movie Moulin Rouge, a loose adaptation of the Verdi opera La Traviata, done as a high-camp jukebox musical. The movie was a sensation, and so was its theme song, Lady Marmalade, performed by the ad hoc supergroup of Christina Aguilera, Maya, Lil' Kim, and Pink. That rendition of Lady Marmalade was a cover. The song was first performed by a group called The Bell in 1974. Instead of twining together the voices of four performers who were all different kinds of pop stars in their own right, LaBelle's version blended together three singers who had clearly spent a lot of time working together, getting to know the ins and outs of each other's style. It was a different kind of spectacle, grown from intimacy and communion, couching the story of the titular lady, a sex worker originally from New Orleans, in a feeling of belonging. Originally known as Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, LaBelle first crested on the wave of American girl groups that spangled the pop charts during the 1960s. They garnered a loyal following, especially in Harlem, where they earned the nickname Sweethearts of the Apollo after several memorable performances at the iconic Apollo Theater. As the 60s gave way to the 70s, the group found their inertia flagging. Working together with their new manager Vicky Wickham, whom they'd met in the UK during a European tour, Patti LaBelle, Sarah Dash, and Nona Hendrix whittled their name down to a mononym, and reinvented their sound at the beginning of the decade, moving from girl group pop into an electric blend of rock, funk, and soul. In the mid-1970s, LaBelle picked up the mantle of glam rock and its fixation on science fiction. Like David Bowie, they started dressing like they'd descended from a spacecraft onto the stage of a rock show. Their tour in support of the album Nightbirds encouraged fans to wear something silver, drawing out all manners of exuberant queer expression. One of their most iconic shows was a stop at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. LaBelle were the first black pop group to perform there, and reports from the night painted as a fabulous time. A bemused review in the New York Times read, quote, there can rarely have been so many bearded gentlemen in dresses, razzle-dazzle sequins, and arched eyebrows at a Met performance before, end quote. LaBelle's flamboyant stage performances encouraged their fans to be equally flamboyant among themselves. They played a key role in the current of queer expressive freedom that defined glam rock in the mid-70s, 
And yet their story has been largely left out of that subgenre's retelling. With me today to talk about LaBelle is the writer, performer, director, musician, and author of the book, Why LaBelle Matters, Adele Berté. Adele, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sasha. It's great to be here. So you began your wonderful book with a memory of seeing LaBelle live on the, on the tour in the mid-70s when they were asking everyone to, to wear something silver and kind of the, the height of, um, of their glam rock era, of their futurist era. What do you remember most vividly from that concert? Like, what are the the sense impressions that just stand out in your memory the most? That show happened in 1975 at a beautiful theater in Cleveland, Ohio. And there are two things that, that really struck me and stayed with me throughout the years about that show. One of them was the audience, initially, before LaBelle hit the stage. And Cleveland was an extremely segregated city, and the only time black and white folks mixed was in the gay bars. And then here is this show, and it was the first time I had seen black and white people together acknowledging each other out, outside of gay bars, and, and it was so theatrical. Everyone was dressed to the nines. Everyone was following the edict of, uh, you know, wear something silver. And there was such excitement and anticipation of the show, but also this mutual acknowledgement that we were all here together and we were about to witness something extraordinary or experience something extraordinary. And then the next thing was the show, which was astounding because it was the first time I'd ever seen women expressing themselves so beautifully, at times aggressively, very theatrically, they were coming down from the rafters on wires and spacesuits and feathers, you know. It was incredible because I wanted to sing rock and roll. And I was inspired by people like Bowie and Lou Reed and people that were playing with gender. But in terms of a mirroring of my own experience as a, as a woman and as a queer woman, there wasn't anything out there. And then LaBelle popped onto the scene and they incited me to have more courage about being authentically myself, which was still hard in the outside world, but it gave me a lot of strength and courage to um, pursue music because for a queer kid growing up in the 70s, that just didn't seem like it was a possibility at all. In the book, you mention going to the LaBelle show shortly after going to a, a Bowie show and reusing some of the costume pieces, you know, kind of yeah. from show to show. And, and costumes like the ones that LaBelle wore on that tour for that string of performances, they're, I feel like they're most often associated with artists like Bowie, New York Dolls, maybe Kiss, this idea of kind of transgressing masculinity into something that is, you know, alien because it's slightly more feminine than you would expect you know, a man to to wear. Mm -hmm. Of course, pop music also has a long history of women performing heightened femininity right. for the stage. And LaBelle are a perfect example of that, of kind of like pushing femininity to this edge where it becomes beyond the real a little bit. It, mm -hmm. it becomes science fiction. It becomes futuristic. Do you think that in doing that, LaBelle pushed femininity to a point where it became defamiliarized? Like what, what can happen to femininity when it's exaggerated past what's normal? 
That's an interesting question because when they were Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells initially, they really had to play to that traditional female drag and, you know, that idea of femininity. And it wasn't just the gendered role, but it was also to assimilate into white acceptance, you know, which was really rough. And at the same time, it was the first time that women ascended to the top of pop culture during the girl group era. So they played into that feminine gendered role very specifically. But when they became LaBelle, I didn't necessarily see them pushing femininity. If anything, they were pushing against those gendered expectations and not in a binary way of being more masculine, but more in a mythopoetic way of presenting women as goddesses, defying all gendered expectations of women and breaking out of that factory line paradigm of femininity that they were in for almost 10 years as a girl group. When they became LaBelle, they had the sonic roar of women unleashed. And in that aspect, I guess it was female and feminine, but their message was always to break rank and fly outside of boundaries on the power of music. I want to talk a little bit about LaBelle and their relationship to time, because one of my favorite anecdotes from your book is the fact that Larry Legaspi, who designed costumes for them, you know, Mm. these iconic costumes, he would use techniques from like the 13th century to Mm -hmm. like hand stitch and hand quilt these outfits, all kind of towards the service of a look that was very futuristic, right? So there's this kind of... Mm -hmm something lodged deep in the past being surfaced, you know, in the service of creating a vision of the future. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that kind of vaulting away from time can also provide an escape from gender norms? Some people see Afrofuturism as just an escape from the oppressions of this earth that we need to try and negotiate. In Afrofuturism or in science fiction in general, it's about bending time and space and making it very rubbery. The greatest artists know how to pull from history with kind of a remix, remaster attitude to combine things. Like I met David Bowie once and we were backstage and someone had given him a mask from the Commedia della Arte. And we were talking about masking and different traditions of masking. And like Bowie, pulled from so many different historical elements. LaBelle with Legaspi were doing that as well. I mean, you mentioned the Italian quilting techniques in the space costumes, but there were also Elizabethan touches and Egyptian touches. And there was a mysticism that they wanted to embrace in their in their presentation as well. And Nona claims as a major influence Sun Ra, who was all about space being the place. But the thing about them is it wasn't just about escape. And Nona has talked about this as as them coming down from another galaxy to bring messages to the children, to be able to lift them out of oppression, to give them new ideas, to unleash their imagination, and to bring that back down to living on Earth again in a way to try and influence what was going on down here. I believe that musically this is what they were really about. And Legaspi was the perfect compliment to them. I want to point out that LaBelle's costume designer, Larry Legaspi, would go on to design iconic costumes for Parliament Fungadelic and Kiss. Legaspi's designs would later inflect disco fashion and science fiction movies alike. He developed his style in part through working with LaBelle, Legaspi also had a huge influence on the fashion designer Rick Owens, 
impact of his work carries through to the present day. If you look at what forward-thinking artists like Lil Nas X and FKA Twigs are wearing right now, you can see the long shadow of his work. I wanted to talk a little bit about the vocal approach that LaBelle took kind of throughout their career, because I think when they started, they vocally had some similarities to other girl groups that were their peers at the time, you know, something about the blend and like the mutual reinforcement of like one voice against Mm -hmm. the others. Throughout your book, you use language around like fire and like pyrotechnics to describe (laughs) the way that they were able to sing, especially once they move from being Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells to just being LaBelle and kind of move into that that second iteration of mm-hmm. their artistry. How did Patti, Sarah, and Nona cultivate such a uniquely pyrotechnic vocal approach? First of all, you have to look at the infrastructure. I mean, it's gospel. Mm-hmm. Gospel foundation is there and strong in everything they do and have done. But what was unique about them was that, uh, you know, it was Patty's octave leaping voice. I mean, no one can sing like her. On their first LP as LaBelle, you hear where this might be going on the very first cut. It's called Morning Much Better. And it's a cover song that was uh, first performed by Genya Raven in Ten Wheel Drive. You know, they're also starting to get into rock and roll at this point. And it really foreshadows the wildness to come. You know, them just breaking out of that boundaried girl group equation. And, you know, they're embracing rock on that record as well. I think they do... Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones and a Laura Nero song, a Carole King song. So they're really starting to play with genre and open their voices up. And then (laughs) they get to the LP with Laura Nero and all bets are off. They just, excuse my language, fucking let it rip. (laughs) Laura Nero was completely unique and she also refused to bow to gendered musical expectations. And that record was just revolutionary in terms of female sonic vocals. It's kind of like they took their gospel roots, applied them to their own lengthy history of singing together and just said, okay, let's go for it. Do you think that the way that they use their voices kind of synthesize different forms of gendered expressions? Because, you know, they obviously had this syncretic approach that, that brought together a lot of different genres and rock and roll at the time. By the, the time that, you know, they started releasing albums as LaBelle, it was pretty heavily coded as almost exclusively masculine, mm-hmm. right? But then LaBelle is coming from this this girl group background. Like, how did they use their voices to draw these two poles together into one act. Rock and roll is very much about a masculine presentation of passion and feeling, you know, and women were not supposed to really sing like that. There were exceptions. I mean, Tina Turner, Mm -hmm. for one, Betty Davis for another. So this was kind of happening. And during their time of when they were evolving into LaBelle as well, the aggression that they embodied in their vocal performances was very foreign to female vocals for the most part. When Nona says she's all sexes, what I read inside that statement is that um, it's a transcendence of not just gendered labels, but of space-time as well and what should be expected. There's something very transcendent about music, and it can also be extremely healing. And I think that's also where they were coming from, politically too. In her book, Adele references an amazing quote from Nona Hendrix. In a 1975 interview, she said, 
I like appealing to both men and women. I have no preferences. I don't limit myself. I'm all sexes. I don't know what a heterosexual or a bisexual or a homosexual or a monosexual is. I don't understand the differences. I love this quote because it feels like a very deliberate way to divert questions of whether she's gay or straight or something else. It's a rejection and a supersession of all available binaries. It's like Nona is saying, what I am and what I want doesn't fit anywhere inside your paradigm. Like she's speaking from a plane somewhere above the one we take for granted every day. But I also love how she moves into this arch stance of pretending not to know or understand the lines we draw between different types of people, different sexualities, different genders. If you're a mythopoetic goddess descending to Earth to impart a lesson in glitter and gleam, what use are these particularities to you? Why wouldn't you see human gender and sexuality as one big continuum, something living, writhing, and glowing, rather than a set of neurotic delineations? This is a topic for another episode, but I'm pretty sure Todd Haynes made reference to this quote in his 1998 movie Velvet Goldmine, where a fan of a fictionalized version of David Bowie says that he likes both girls and boys, because there's no difference between them anyway. I want to go back to that that quote from Nona that, you know, the mm-hmm. I'm all sexes quote, because I feel like it's such an expansive way to address gender in like so few words, right? Like mm-hmm. even just the fact that she doesn't say both, she says all, right? Right, right. Do you think that the plurality of voice heard on LaBelle's records, like you, you refer to it as, as a braiding of voice in the book, mm-hmm. does that facilitate or interact with the plurality of identity that's kind of inherent to that quote? It's an interesting question because in a way, like Nona had this very deep, sexual, velvety voice that could almost be thought of as as kind of masculine. And then Sarah Dash had a very light, feminine voice that could sing incredibly high, almost as high as Patty. And then Patty was like the woman unleashed in the middle, you know? So in that way, there were there were different um gendered nuances in their vocals that somehow and due to, you know, their experience together as singers, but also as friends, that braid was able to reflect, like Nona says, many genders. But I also, you know, I really do think that she was writing and projecting an embrace of fluidity in all aspects of life, including sex and sexuality and gender. As LaBelle were synthesizing these different elements, who were some of the artists that had codified, you know, what rock and roll was, like what funk and soul was at the time. Like Mm -hmm. who were the artists who had kind of like really solidified the strains that LaBelle then braided together? There were, you know, there were the gospel singers, like the ones like Mahalia Jackson, and there were also the blues singers of the 20s and 30s, you know, Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey, and then there was Big Mama Thornton, So there was a history of women being aggressive in music. And then, you know, in terms of funk, James Brown, I mean, the master. And I think, you know, George Clinton, too. I mean, Nona and George Clinton knew each other in New Jersey, and he was a barber, and he used to cut her hair. (laughs) You know, I think they pulled from gospel. They pulled from funk that they loved. They pulled from rock and roll. I mean, they were on tour with the Rolling Stones for the Stones' first tour of America. The Stones picked them up to be their opening act. So 
they were very influenced by rock and roll and and the trajectory of them turning into the brilliance that they became was also due to their manager Vicky Wickham and she had discovered people like Hendrix and Rolling Stones and put them on the air for the first time and Vicky very much influenced them to kind of basically she said to them you know you're you're so brilliant you're black women you have a lot to say in this moment let's do it don't be afraid of change. It was such a, a great mix of influences that they were open to and not afraid to embrace. They had this brilliant iteration, this brilliant synthesis of all these things that then kind of like superseded all these influences. I, I kind of want to loop back to what you were saying about homophobia and, and queerness in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It seems like there was this weird doubling of one that you you couldn't really be out in the sense of the way that people started to come out later in the century and in like the early 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you mentioned in the book that Vicky didn't come out until 1999. There's almost this kind of open secret in the music press around it. Mm-hmm. One journalist wrote about both Nona and Vicky as like confirmed bachelor women. I don't think either of them had come out in the way that we normally think of that mm-hmm. in the sense of like making an announcement to a media outlet and like right. getting press around it. Mm-hmm. But it did seem to be there on some level, maybe to people who were paying attention or who like mm-hmm. knew <laughs> what the frame is like confirmed bachelor referred to. Right, right. How did those open secrets kind of percolate? I mean, we talked a little bit about like how it's present in like the the vocality mm-hmm. about how that like queer desire kind of bubbles throughout the album that Laura Nero did with LaBelle. But mm-hmm. what are some of the other strategies that groups during this era and LaBelle in particular could use to kind of let people know that they were there as a beacon without necessarily like making themselves too much of a target? Well, you know, there was, (laughs) there was a moment when during that same show that I recount in the, um, in the prologue, but Nona was chasing Sarah Dash around the stage with a whip. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I like lost my mind, of course. But uh, <laughs> but um, but Patty uh, Patty also mentioned something in an interview back then. She was talking about the sexual feelings she would have when she was singing with LaBelle, and she said, you know, all the men and the women out there were all my lovers. So, and that was, you know, she was saying that back in seventy five, seventy six, which was very, you know, provocative. But the music did seem to find plenty of people that were receptive to it, that it needed to find. Yeah, exactly. Because there were so many great potential singles on those records that never got promoted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in turn that wore at them because they were doing political, hard-hitting, kind of R&B pop songs at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, the Isley Brothers were doing the same thing. And Stuvie Wonder was doing the same thing, but they didn't silence them. But they didn't give LaBelle airplay on the political songs that they were presenting. There is something kind of irreplaceable about just the sound of voices playing off of each other in real mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And that is like kind of inextricably linked to that erotic dimension that we've been talking about, where you are just like watching other people and listening to other people and responding as you go. And it's not something you can really plan for. Yeah, yeah. It's um 
I mean, it's like a full body orgasm. <laughs> it really is. Like yeah. when you're in the music, I, I, when I was a kid, I was singing with a gospel choir for a couple of years and there's absolutely nothing like that feeling. It really holds you and lifts you. And, you know, you're not supposed to have an erotic charge when you're singing church music, but it happens. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of always been there, right? Like the yeah. idea of like, the redirecting eros towards like God or, you know, yes, exactly. or towards the group. Um, I feel like there's a lot of overlap in the cosmologies of LaBelle and Sun Ra and other artists kind of working around the same time. There is this feeling of not just like an alien being coming down to earth to like mm -hmm. check us out, but also like human beings like rising to meet that invitation, like rising to meet a better way of doing things and like figuring out ways that you know we can not just be rescued but like rescue ourselves or like get to a point where we can like fly up to meet that yeah that's a perfect analogy of what they were doing really theirs was a message that grabbed black audiences but also the queer community right. and you know women who discovered and were moved by their music all women of all colors and we felt beaten down and shamed for so long as women and as queer people and here were three singers telling us we could move from that oppressive dimension into something new. Mm -hmm. Theirs was a message of transcendence for sure. It also has to do with identity politics because they were the antithesis of that. They were all about fluidity and not having to box yourself into any specific role or identity to fly free of it. I do think there are artists that are starting to do this. I mean, Lil Nas X is amazing. <laughs> Definitely. He just doesn't give a flying F and he's just <laughs> embracing it all and doing his mm. thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So in terms of ge gender fuckery, excuse the language, I think he's, he's a prime example of where I, I would love to see it going. It's interesting because speaking for myself, I first encountered LaBelle through Moulin Rouge, right? Through this mm -hmm. cover mm -hmm. of Lady Marmalade for the Baz Luhrmann's film Moulin Rouge. And I mm -hmm. feel like those two versions of the song came at such different political times. And that cover, it feels like such a different gesture because it's such a, that movie such a Napster movie. It's like mm -hmm. very much about like splicing together music that people are familiar with, that people mm -hmm. know, but that come from all kinds of different scenes and different political environments. Yeah, yeah. There were anecdotes about, you know, school kids like singing the the French chorus <laughs> of the song yeah, yeah. In, the, in hallways and not knowing what it meant. And I, I will say that the same thing happened at my elementary school. And it that, did. You know, people, people were singing those lyrics oh, in the hallways wow. and like kind of knowing that we were getting away with something illicit. <laughs> um, it's like we know this is kind of not allowed, but it's mm -hmm. in French, so no one can get mad at us. So <laughs> at least great. that that spirit of maybe getting away with something that you're not supposed to right. at least carried through. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is like the most important thing that people should seek out about LaBelle? now if they aren't as familiar with the band? Their presentation against conformity. It's going to kill us all. <laughs> it really is. I mean, having to conform to specific rigid tribes or identities, I, I just think it's th that's something that they detonated when they stopped being the typical girl group. And their sound was just 
unlike any other. It was raw. It was passion. It was unleashed and was provocative in that it may, it was, you really felt their music on a very physical level. It's not that I don't like electronic music, but I do not like the way they work with people's voices anymore. It's very compressed and robotic, the way they auto-tune and all of it. I, I think it just takes the passion out of the human voice. And the human voice is something that it's spiritual. You can't fuck with it like that and not feel it on a cultural level where something's going to be missing. And maybe it's just that I'm old and <laughs> maybe I'm, you know, like one of those people like, oh, these kids, they don't know. <laughs> one of the the things you write about in your book and kind of one of the things that the book is like a correctional gesture against is this erasure that you see of LaBelle mm -hmm. and the music canon, you know, it's, they're mm -hmm. not really necessarily included in discussions of, of glam rock or even of like funk and soul at the time and in every discussion. Mm -hmm. What led to that exclusion from, you know, the scenes and the artistic movements that they, they helped define? Mm. I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recently. I'd never uh, visited, and I was on tour reading from the book. And they have a digital thing that tourists can pick what groups or artists they want to nominate for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there were a hundred names. I scrolled through them all, and LaBelle was not there. And it was just devastating for me to not see their name there, you know? I think, in part, they were buried because... The sexism in the music industry was just horrible. And they were a self-contained, very strong unit of women who refused to be dictated to by the shirts in the music industry, who were formidably sexist. They had a female manager. They had a female lawyer. They were surrounded by gay designers and songwriters. And I'm not about to out anyone here, but there was queerness in the, in, in the immediate ranks. And um, having been signed to major labels myself in the 1980s, I experienced how homophobic they are about women. And I'm sure it was much worse in the 70s, you know. So, you know, they were a fierce self-contained unit and the record companies had to have felt threatened by that. And, you know, I wish, I really wish more contemporary artists would sing their praises. And when I went to write the book, I was shocked to discover there wasn't one book written about them and dedicated to their greatness, you know. There are great books being written about women in black music and rock and roll, like compilations like Black Diamond Queens by Maureen Mahon and Liner Notes for the Revolution by Daphne Brooks for like an more of an academic take. Also, it's the fact that Patti LaBelle ended up with the surname. She kept the surname. So whenever I would mention LaBelle, that I was writing about LaBelle, people automatically went to Patti. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of invisible I mean, the band is is invisible to people beneath 50 years old, you know. They just, they go to Patty. They really need to have credit where credit is due, I think. But how do we create that? We create that by doing just what we're doing right now, having you and I speak about them and how important they were, you know. The way LaBelle chased spiritual apertures, erotic thrills, and political momentum in their music crystallized some of the key elements of mid-70s sound. They seized on the potential of soul and glam rock alike, darting between genres that the rock press generally tried to keep distinct. A lot of coverage of glam rock framed the genre as something that white men could participate in to break taboos around gender. 
A man wearing glitter makeup in a sequined bodysuit was noteworthy and exciting because it strayed so far from traditional ideas of what a man was. But women like LaBelle also performed beautiful and outrageous visions of femininity that helped define the cultural memory of glam rock for decades. In their cosmology, it didn't matter what gender you started with, so long as you joined them in their heightened state of being, suspended among the stars. As Adele points out in her book, LaBelle influenced generations of musicians to come, from Madonna and Grace Jones, to TLC and Missy Elliott, to Lady Gaga and Beyonce. All of these musicians embrace images of gender that are larger and more fantastic than life. There's a tendency in certain parts of pop culture to imagine gender neutrality as an absence of gender, an impoverishment of gender. But what if, like LaBelle, we imagined androgyny as glittering abundance? What if we entertained a future of gender where there was so much of it going around that we lost track of where it came from, what it's for, to whom it used to belong? Thanks for listening. Want to hear the songs mentioned in this week's episode, plus more of my picks? Search for our official Shattering Gleam playlist on Pandora, or click the link in the show description. You can find Shattering Gleam on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley, Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Doherty, Rachel Elias, Sarah Esikoff, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Terminay, Chris Watherspoon, Teddy Zambetti, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shattering Gleam is a SiriusXM production. Serious XM Podcasts.